Hi, this is Tony Dieterlizzi, best-selling author and illustrator of hopefully one of your kids' favorite books, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful podcast. not just to be read. I mean, it should be a start to something else. So reading a book, ultimately, while it's, it's good, it is a form of consumption. And I'm more interested in creation. So I'm trying to create palettes that, uh, and formats even sometimes, that immediately engage people in easy ways to come up with their own story. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast, and Twitter at the GBB Podcast. And soon, I said this before, but soon to come website, gbbpodcast.com. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. it it'll happen. You said that like two years ago. <laughs> no, but... But we had a talk about it this week, and we're going to get it set up on the hosting now. And once that's set up and WordPress is and stuff, yeah, we'll, uh-huh. we'll let you know when it's really uh-huh. <laughs> We'll let them know. So today I'm convinced that we uh, we just spoke to, I don't want to say genius, but I do want to say genius. I, <laughs> Mo, <laughs> so Mo do it, Willems. I do. I, I, I was really, I don't know. If, I don't know how to explain. It sounds weird to say this. I don't know. But... If there's somebody I have a man crush on, it's Mo Willems. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Like, I, that guy, dude, he's I'm so not going fascinating, to, uh, and you're not going to argue with yeah. him. <laughs> no, I'm not going to argue with with you on that at all. I, I, um, yeah. If there is somebody working in children's publishing today who is maybe not at the moment, but probably will be in another ten years' time, the equivalent of Dr. Seuss is for us. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it's going to be Mo. If that, if he's that, not there already. And that's what I was going to say. I, I feel like we were talking to, like, in the future, Imagine. we're going to say, we, yeah, we, like, and that's a cliche thing to say, but I feel like in the future, we're going to be like, you know, that was a, we talked to a legend in children's, children's literature and, or yeah. in books. Well, like, I mean, in, we, we've been fortunate with the guests that we've had. We've talked to a lot of legit legends and we've talked mm-hmm. to a lot of people who are really um well known in their industries or really successful in their careers but uh, i think you're right when it comes to children's books um you know talking to mo in you know when my kids are in a, are adults it's going to be like oh remember that time we had an hour long chat with dr seuss you yeah, know exactly. it's going to be like yeah. what you did what you know <laughs> I've actually, um, I didn't bring this up because it was, it would have been ridiculous, but I actually, I met Mo before, um, when my daughter was very young, when my daughter was very young, he was doing a, uh, like a book tour for whatever the latest, um, oh no, it wasn't even an elephant piggy book. It was a a picture book he did called that is not a good idea, Mm -hmm. which is super cute. Um, but he did a, a book tour for that and he was 
uh, he had an appearance in, in DC. And so my daughter knew many of his other books at that point. I think she was probably four, maybe five. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went down and, uh, it was great. He had a, you know, he did a reading, he did a little Q and a session, and then he sat at the front and he, he signed books if you wanted to. And, uh, so we got a few books signed and when we went up there, um, I made sure that she had a question for him, you know, and so we got up to the table and he's signing her books and I said, honey, you got a question? Um, she said, said, yeah, she's why, why does elephant have a name, but piggy doesn't because elephant's name is Gerald. (laughs) Right. right? And he must be asked this question all the time. time. He didn't, he didn't even miss a beat. He's like, well, she does have a name. Her name is piggy. You know, and so, and that was it. And then we got shuffled along. We had to get out of line. But uh, <laughs> just from, I mean, from that event, you know, the way that he, the way that he interacted with the audience and the parents and the kids and read uh-huh. his story, um, he was, I could tell then that he was sort of one of a kind. And he was, right. I mean, he said, he says in our conversation today that like so many artists are, are introverts. But mm-hmm. then they're they're thrust into the spotlight to sell their book and be champions, and they have to be extroverts, and it doesn't come naturally to them. No, it was a it was a fantastic interv- interview, and if we're going to title it anything, we're going to call it, and you're going to see why. What do you want from me? <laughs> <laughs> so, there's lots of memorable quotes uh, in this, and and I'll talk about it a little after the after the interview. But we're going to go play it for you right now. I hope you enjoy. I know we did. Here you go. Mo, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's a pleasure to have you. That was very kind. Nice to be here. Um, uh, it was funny. Right before we started talking, you said, uh, forgive you if you look like you're inattentive because you're doodling. That's actually one of my first questions. Is Were you a doodler when you were a kid? Oh, absolutely. I think pretty pretty much from day one. Um, yeah. Probably on a hospital smock. <laughs> so you were one of those kids who was just always scribbling and always drawing over every piece of paper you could find? In pretty much every medium, I, I, the story goes that in my early doodling days, you know, uh, the 12 to 18 month uh, age range, that feces was one of my favorite uh, yes. media. It's a preferred medium uh, for many, many babies, I think. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> well, now I, it's mostly markers. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that you've grown out of that. <laughs> Did you uh, did as you make they, as they say the medium is the message? <laughs> did you make books when you were a kid? Like you know, after you grew out of the the feces in the eighteen months, like were you one of those kids who took pieces of paper, folded them in half, stapled them, made your own books? A, a little bit. I mean, my my real passion, my dream was to be a cartoonist. Um, so I did strips uh, more than I did books. Although I did at some point start doing comic books. Uh, Laser Brain was my first sort of character who was a space alien who had lost his brain in an accident or nice. something and was trying to save the world but did it very poorly. And I remember uh, that the price on it was 50 cents more than it's worth. <laughs> so you had you had that wit even then. <laughs> <laughs> or business acumen. Right, one of the two. <laughs> Choosing... Um, We've talked to a lot of different kinds of artists, you know, authors, illustrators, artists, directors, actors, and choosing to pursue a life in the arts, um, as you know, it's it's fraught with uncertainty. You you never know what's yes. going to happen. Um, so I have to ask, how supportive were your parents, your friends, your family when you realized that this was really something you were going to take seriously and, and actually go to school for? Well, I would say I would say two things. I would say one. 
at this stage, every career is just as fraught yeah. as a career in the arts. That's so a good point. if you're a young person and you're thinking about going in the arts, you're really, it's no different than going into business at this stage. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, the most of the people around me, they uh, assumed that they would go into their father's business. Um, I guess the country was feminist enough that even the daughters thought that they would go into their father's business. Right. And they would get one job and they would keep that for the rest of their career. Uh, I knew that wasn't going to be for me. I had a distinct advantage that my father quit his normal job and became a potter. Hmm. when I was in about third grade. So it's very difficult for a potter to tell his son, I want you to do something practical with your life. <laughs> like pottery. <laughs> I understand you're going to film school, but that's not pottery. Um, so that, in that sense, I guess I lucked out. Um, you know, I think that the there was a real, for me, there was a fear of whether it would work out or not. Um, but I knew that I was getting a set of skill, a skill set that I'd be able to do something else if this didn't work out. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, I, one of, one of the keys of all of this is if you're going to be somebody who writes things, draws things, has ideas, you need to have a well of ideas. So if you're just studying art, you're going to be making art about art. Um, so having a good base code, having a good fundamental sense of history, politics, uh, society, maybe a language or two is very important because that all gives you ideas to write about. Mm -hmm. You have to live first, right? Well, you have to, well, not first, concurrently. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good point. You don't want to live first and then decide you're going to be an artist. Right. <laughs> So, uh, Wikipedia, the source of all information, tells us that you performed stand-up comedy earlier in your career. Can I assume that that didn't go so well, or how did it go? <laughs> um, I, I, it was it was great. I mean, you know, I, I started in high school because it was the only place I could go where I would be guaranteed that no one would laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> at least your face. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um... You know, I having a couple hundred people in a room hate you was not a novel experience for me, so that that was <laughs> right. fine. Uh, and I do see writing uh, ultimately. You know, you, no one's ever going to know what's funny or what's good. It's impossible. Anybody who says that they do is, you know, is lying to you. But what you do know over time is what's not funny. And the only way to right. do that is through practice. Uh, and that is the exercise of getting in front of people and failing repeatedly. And so at a certain point, your muscles get strong enough that you have an innate sense of what doesn't work. And then you have to leave everything else, get rid of that. And whatever's left, you have to trust. Mm -hmm. um, so having performed quite a bit in high school and college and after college and having written a lot of TV allowed my muscles to get strong enough that uh, I have an intuitive sense of what's not working. Mm -hmm. And that is a great advantage. I still don't know what works. I mean, that's still the, the, the daily struggle. Um, but I can sense what doesn't work, just in the same way as if you are an athlete and you throw a baseball or something. You know when the ball, when you've thrown poorly before the ball ends up where it's going to be. As soon as it's out of your hands, you're like, oh, that was not a good throw. Yeah. 
was that I mean because comedy in different media it's different you know the timing is different the what what's funny yes, and absolutely. what works it's different so I mean was was comedy in that medium you know standing up on stage and telling jokes did that feel natural to you or did it just feel more natural to to be putting your jokes on the page um pretty much everything that I've done has been performative mm -hmm. in some way uh, you know I did a lot of sketch and I think I preferred sketch to stand up um but you know in, in the work that I do now, it's, there's also a difference. I sort of say between like television and film. I mean, classic film, the Marx Brothers, if you watch a Marx Brothers film at home, it feels like there are all these gaps. It feels a little bit slow. But if you go to a cinema, big movie house, which was the medium that these films were made for, it takes a while for those laughs to build. And so they've timed it out. They were you know, performing on Broadway and they created these sort of, this timing for a large cinema. Mm -hmm. And the movies are hilarious with a lot of people. And in terms of the picture books that I write, I'm write, some of the books I write are really lap books. They're an intimate thing, two people together reading a sort of a quieter story. And then there are other books that are performative books, class books, the teacher or the crazy grandparent or the wild librarian reading to a whole host of kids. So you have to be aware of that rhythm and that timing for the type of group that the piece is going to be performed to, you know. Yeah. Everything I do is still performative. It's just that I don't have to show up. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a part of you that shows up, though, right? Well, I mean, there's a part of me that's stuck in there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's uncomfortable, but that's only 49% of the piece, you know. The, the, the real work is being done by the reader. Right. Yeah. I, we're going to circle back to that because I want to ask you about that in a little bit. But... You, so you talk about sketch comedy, <clears throat> excuse me, do you think that, um, do you look at your books as sort of sketch comedy just in a different format? Well, to a degree, I mean, I see them as cartoons in a different format, and I'm certainly um, influenced by sketch. I mean, sketch is such a great word, it, it applies to my drawings as well. They seem yeah. sketchy, they seem as if they've happened very quickly. Uh, the format of most of the books is short, like a sketch. You can read it in five minutes or three minutes or seven minutes. Uh, usually there's some sort of twist at the end. Again, a lot of my books are dialogue driven and so therefore obviously uh, performative. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, for the format of sketch, the idea of having a, a fundamental controlling idea, exploiting it, poking it around, and then letting it surprise you is is a medium that I'm comfortable with. Mm -hmm. It's very much like a sonnet, you know? You have your premise, and then you deal with your premise, and then you flip your premise. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I never thought about it like that. Um, so, I this, this might sound weird, but I'm a big proponent of failure. <clears throat> I think uh -huh. that I think that it's the only way that we're going to learn, especially as kids. You know, we don't learn by having somebody tell us something. You know, you never listen well, to your parents. I would parents. never say especially as kids. I right. mean, that, that implies that kids are different, that they're some sort of alien race. You know, kids are well, the same. What I mean, I think failure is just as important for adults as it is for kids. Right. But what I, what I mean is that it's it's when we when we become adults, I feel like we're beaten into submission in a certain way. So we're we're. we're we're, it's easier for us to listen to somebody who, when they give us advice, like if a boss tells us something, or or a, you know a significant other tells us something, and we they they mean it as advice. We're like, okay, we'll take that. But I feel like kids are less inclined to listen to somebody when they're just given advice. They're more inclined to, to only learn 
or change their behavior if they actually just do something and then fail. They're not going to listen to somebody else tell them why they shouldn't do something. Right. You don't say, don't, don't lick the fire. Exactly. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, and you've said in the past that you've written books, unpublished, that you consider to be failures because you tried to write what you thought kids wanted. And you said that you don't give people what they want. You give them what they don't yet know they want. And I'm wondering, right. how do you do that? Uh, <laughs> uh, it goes back to what I was saying before. I mean, you know, well, there, there's a lot of luck and there's a lot of work. I mean, it's boring, ultimately. You know, it's a lot of banging your head against the wall and writing and rewriting and sketching and resketching. Um, and then ultimately trusting yourself and your audience that there's there's something there. Mm-hmm. You know, and also be be willing for it not to work out. Yeah. So you know, don't let the pigeon drive the bus. At the time, was an unusual book. So I was fully ready for absolutely no one to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once one person read it, I figured, well, if one person's reading it, I guess then everybody will. Yeah. Those those are those are my choices. Um, I I. Did not. I will never have any sort of moderate success. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. I, I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> so, but you also have to be. The point is, it's not a bluff. You have to be willing to say, "I think this is strong. Maybe nobody else does." Yeah. The great thing about things that don't work out is very few people remember them. That's true. So see, it seems as if I'm doing really well. But I've got, <laughs> right. My career is screwed with failures. The, just the fact is you you don't know about them yeah. because nobody's read them, watched them, interested in them. Exactly. Well, that that's what I mean. Is like I think it was saying I'm a proponent of failure. It sounds weird, but I think that it's it's what especially artists, but it's it's what people need to have as part of their experience, as part of their life, in order to to know what and to know, in order to know the correct road ahead in in whatever that they're doing. Well, to, to allow that to evolve. I mean, the, where I was really, really lucky was that I got to bring, I got to begin my career in television. And television is a disposable medium. Certainly was more when I was in it, and it's an anonymous uh, medium. Right. So if I really struggled and I still wrote a terrible script, the worst thing that would happen would be somebody would say, "Elmo was not hilarious today." Yeah. But they won't know whose fault that was. I, 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 I wonder who the 27-year-old writer who is unlisted in this episode really is terrible. I will ensure never to watch the episode in which he has some sort of part, even though it hasn't been announced. <laughs> when you write a book, the first thing that they read after the title is your name. I mean, you have total responsibility. So... I was lucky to get a lot of my really terrible ideas out anonymously with Muppets. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that, that know, was your proving? I am actually often asked, like, what's your advice for how to become a children's writer? I was like, well, get a job on a TV show. Yeah. <laughs> Work on Sesame Street. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so with, with ideas, I really like a quote that you gave. Uh, I think it was to The New Yorker about how ideas don't just happen they're grown and cultivated over time. And then you said into a beautiful tree and then you burn it, you cut it down and burn it for profit. So have you, have you ever held on to an idea because you don't want to share it? You just want it to be yours or are great ideas always meant to be shared and tried? 
I don't know about great ideas. I mean, I am I'm not somebody who writes in a journal for myself. I uh, I even if I'm writing for family and friends or doing something for a purposely small audience, I enjoy having my stuff be seen because I think that it's a dialogue and I'm interested to see how anybody will react to it, whether that be a large audience or a small audience. I become much more respectful of my ideas and therefore patient. I am allowing them to germinate longer. I'm allowing them to grow in different ways. I can tell when they're not ready, mm -hmm. but I would never have an idea that I would hoard. Hmm. So what do you, for knowing when they're ready, is it something you're just a gut instinct at this point? Or do you have like a, do you have a method for it? Or is it just, you just know, I, you know every, every idea is different and so, and, and they, and they appear in ways that are unexpected. I mean, some ideas germinate over a, a decade and mm -hmm. then, you know, I've got a book coming out in the Fall, which is a sequel to Leonardo the Terrible Monster. I think the Leonardo the Terrible Monster came out in, I want to say maybe 2005, 2004. Um, this is coming out in 2017. That's a weird gap, um, but it took a while to germinate. And then when something clicked, uh, the actual scripting of it went relatively quickly. The same thing happened with Leonardo the Terrible Monster. I spent seven or eight years on that book, even before I was published, working uh, on sketchbooks in a character called um, The Little Bad Wolf. Little Bad Wolf was the Big Bad Wolf's unsuccessful cousin. You know, the Big Bad Wolf <laughs> would eat bags of grannies, and, you know, it was just a very successful <laughs> bad wolf. And the little bad wolf, like, stuck menus under doors, you know, like, really had nothing to give. And I made a comic strip out of it. I pitched it to the syndicates. I made a sketchbook out of it. I tried to write picture books. And it just never, never worked because I could never find the flip of that badness. And then if the book came in out in 05, it's usually two years before the book comes out. So it's around 2003 or so. So my daughter was two. And she came in, or maybe two and a half, and said, Roar, I'm a terrible monster. And that that language fit immediately to this character that I've been working on for almost a decade. And then wow. again, the scripting of that went relatively quickly um, because I knew the character. All I had to do was, you know, mm -hmm. turn it into a monster. And then later I had to give it a hornectomy because its horns were too big. <laughs> um, so now again, so what is it about... The, the, the underlying question of these stories that makes them germinate over a long period of time and be written relatively quickly. I don't know, but I've got, you know, every story comes in a different way. Does that happen a lot where, where you might be stuck or you might be in the middle of writing something and then something either from your daughter or from your life or from just the world around you, like, is that flash of brilliance? Is that light bulb that turns on and helps you finish? It's usually the opposite. It's usually when I get the book back that I realize what I was talking about. Oh, I see. You know, so <laughs> I work on it for six, eight months and then we do the proofs and there's all sorts of technical stuff that has to happen. And then a year later, they send you a FNG which is the folded and right. gathered maybe an early uh, proof and you're like oh that's what I was writing about <laughs> there we go right. <laughs> is, um, it, is, so it, is it usually, usually a, 
is it usually a sense of fulfillment that you're like, oh, I, I did, I hit, I hit the mark on that one, or is it ever you look no, at no, the? No, you never no, no, no. no? I mean, it's, it's always, you know, where you screwed up. If, if you made a great book, you really felt like, oh well, I, I just did it. I, this book totally, <laughs> you know, I knocked it out of the park, and it's fantastic. You would stop making books. Yeah. Um, so you know, I'm very, very happy that um, I see my work uh, pretty much consistently as unmitigated failures. <laughs> I guess you have to, right? You're right. Oh, no, you don't have to. <laughs> Look, and you will talk to any writer. The thing is, you know, the, the irony of our industry is what we are asked to do. We're introverts. We have to sit alone in a room for months at a time working on the same drawing or the same idea, tiny, tiny, tiny. And then as soon as it's done, you are asked to go on stage in front of hundreds of people <laughs> and jump up and down as if you were an extrovert. Yeah. And so then you have to read your book and every single book has one moment, a word, a drawing, a page turn, a color choice that is a, just stabs you in your heart. Yep. And makes you want to throw up and you have now have to get on stage and read three books so there are going to be three points where you want to throw up in front of all these people and you can't tell them. <laughs> you just got to muscle through it, right? You got to, you got to, yep. Ignore it and look the other way. You know, and there it is. But it also is a spark. Every time you do that in public, you're like, next time I'm not going to make that yeah. error. I'm not going to exactly. finesse Ex that in some way. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, many of your books are, are relatively simple. I think they're deceptively simple. Um, they're, they're anything but... They're not, they're not easy. You know, they are simple. They, simple let, and easy are two very different things. Yeah, well, let me rephrase. From an outsider's perspective they look sim simple like the design is, is, is simple mm -hmm. character design is is straightforward there's not a whole lot in many of the books there's not a whole lot of background um right. and i know they're anything but simple i'm not you know. they are simple That's a good but the but the, the messages and the meaning are not simple the meanings that kids can pull out of them i don't think that are, are simple and i think that that simplicity though is the secret weapon um but I'm wondering, when you're designing a new character, whether um, you know it's a friend for Elephant and Piggy or if it's just a brand new book, how important is it for you when it comes that that simplicity of the design? So so many of your characters are easy for kids to draw. My daughter picks up your book and she draws Elephant and Piggy. She draws the pigeon. I have to imagine that that's intentional. That's a formal decision that I've made. I've made a formal decision that every lead character of a book that I illustrate can be reasonably and quickly reproduced by a five-year-old. And if I'm writing a character where I feel that that is not the case, that the story does not involve a character that can look like that, I will ask a friend to illustrate it. Really? Mm-hmm. And that's just to have kids engage with the book more, or is there another reason? Well, a book is meant to, a book is meant to be played, not just to be read. I mean, it should be a spark to something else. To so reading a book ultimately, while it's it's good, it is a form of consumption, and I'm more interested in creation. So I'm trying to create palettes that uh, and formats even sometimes that immediately engage people in easy ways to come up with their own stories. Mm -hmm. Don't let the pigeon blank. Right. Fairly easy. It's, a, it's ultimately a format. And so I'm winking at you and saying, look, here's a format. Go out and do it on your own, which is 
but it has to be implicit. It can't be explicit. Hey, kids, now you too can, you know. Then because it isn't rock and roll. It has to, it has to feel like it's your idea. Yeah. Well, because it, it becomes your idea. Yeah, it absolutely works because it's, it's, my daughter, she's eight now, but, you know, she has loved reading and art have been her two constant loves her entire life. And, you know, she'll pick up a book you know, I keep mentioning Elephant Piggy because it's her favorite, but she'll pick up one of those books or she'll pick up, I don't know if you know the Owly books by Andy Runton. Um, yes. Yeah, and he's, Owly is also, he's deceptively simple. And like she, and Bone from Jeff Smith, like she'll just sit right. down and she'll sketch out those characters. And because they're so um, not complex, uh, she can do a really good job of it and it makes her feel proud. And then she writes her own stories and her own books with those characters. Right. The word you're looking for is inviting. Yes. The design is inviting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing that is, it's you know, aside from my daughter, I I know a lot of kids who adore your books, and and what one of the things that I think is really interesting is that there's no one doorway into your work that they all share. They all have these different points of entry. Um, you know, some might know you best for Knuffle Bunny, others for Elephant and Piggy, others for Pigeon, others for something else. Set aside the fact that you think all of your books are unmitigated failures. What do you think is the best place for a kid to start? Like, if, if which which of your books would you put in their hands first? Oh, I think whatever jazz is them. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, fortunately people are individual enough that I, I wouldn't have the, the answer for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also don't think I should. Right. Like, I, I wrote it. Isn't that enough? Like, give me a break. You figure out what's best for the kids. Like, well, it seems to be working. Spoon, I got a spoon for you, too? I mean, come on. Like, what more do you want from me? Could you come read it to my kid, too? Exactly. Right? I, I'm, I'm, no, I don't have a clown outfit. I don't have a clown outfit. Sorry. You know. Yeah. Implicit in your question is the idea that there's a right answer. Right. And I reject it was- that. I kind of set you up for that one intentionally, but I was just curious if you thought that there was one book that really represented you and, and the rest of the books the best. No, no, no. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, what I usually say, cause you're ultimately asking me, what is my favorite book? Um, I usually say that your books are like your children. Yeah. Um, which means that some of them grow up to be disappointments, but you can't say that publicly. <laughs> You can tell me off air. <laughs> I, I won't tell that book. On Sunday dinner, you love them all the same. That's right. Okay. So we, we've spoken with a number of people on our podcast who create for children. And something that I've uh, taken away from most of the successful ones is that they treat kids as if they're actual people with complex thoughts and emotions versus treating them, you know, for the lack of a better word, like they're dumb. Because some, you know, some places try to do that. And I, I've seen interviews with you, and I, I can tell that you subscribe to this belief that they're complex. And so, how does that affect your storytelling? Are you conscious of it when you write all the time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my my credo is you always think of your audience; you never think for your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the thing that makes kids unique, um, because they are human beings, is that they're new. They, mm-hmm. they just showed up. So, like, they just showed up at the party. They don't know where the chips are. They don't know where the bathroom is. Um, they don't know if the keg's out back or not, right? Um, 
And so they, they've just arrived, so they're asking really fundamental philosophical questions. They're not asking what is Beyonce's latest record. They're asking uh, what is jealousy. Right. In the same mm -hmm. way as when you walk into a party, you're not trying to figure out who's there. You're trying to figure out where the bathroom and the keg is. Basic geography. Um, so fortunately for me, uh, those are the questions that most interest me. When I was performing stand-up and when I was doing sketch, um, I, I'm just, I'm not interested in regular pop culture. Uh, uh, and I've, I'm never very good at it. I don't remember names. Um, so to find myself in a situation where I don't have to make cultural references is a joy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm interested in those core questions. And I never ask a question I know the answer to. So that means I'm on the journey. Because if I know the answer, then I'm writing a manual. Then I might as well just, like, write for VHS machines or something. <laughs> wow, there's a reference. <laughs> so, I mean, is it fair to say, then, that you write about topics that you don't understand? Or topics yes, questions. That... Every, every book should be a question I don't quite get yet. Do and you... I assume that I don't know the answer, then, you know, and it interests me. Mm -hmm. um, I just have to make the jump that hopefully it's going to interest somebody else. So with that understanding that you write about these things that you're searching for, that you know, you know kids are going to be asking the questions about, and you're actually searching for at the same time, like what is jealousy, what, what is friendship, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, is writing almost therapeutic then in that sense? Do you find yourself searching for the answers and then arriving at a, at a, at a realization that maybe you didn't have before the book began? Usually arriving at a better question. Yeah, no, it yeah. can absolutely be cathartic. Um, yeah. It, that's a private catharsis. Right, sure. You know? So the thing is, you know, I'm not, I'm, again, I'm writing for an audience, so it's not just therapy. Right. Um, but there is a combination of that, absolutely. As my interests change, so, so does the work. Yeah. Hmm. So when you first developed Elephant and Piggy, were they based on an actual friendship in your life, or were they just supposed to be like an archetype of friendship? No, I think at the time, the big question really was how to be a friend. Right? It was just something I, I didn't feel I was particularly good at. Mm -hmm. um, and so Elephant Gerald came first, and I, I knew this was the only book series that I knew was going to be a series. So I really developed it uh, like a series. I spent a lot more time on the characters than I normally would. But, you know, a, a normal picture book is more like a movie, and so the character has to change by the end of it. Right. At that point, the characters have their journey. I don't really see necessarily a need for a sequel, or it, it doesn't present itself. Um, I didn't think of it with Pigeon. Fortunately, the Pigeon never learns anything, so you can, <laughs> you can do a lot with the Pigeon. Um, but Elephant and Piggy I definitely saw as a series, so I, um, I developed Gerald, I had him for a while, and then I basically had a casting call and brought in all different types of animals and personalities, and Piggy was the one that, that clicked with Gerald. Yeah. And so got the cast. So if if Elephant and Piggy's journey and the journey of those 25, 25 books, 25 books, um, mm -hmm. 
was sort of exploring the question of what is friendship and what does it mean to be a friend. And you began it looking at it from your own perspective because it wasn't something that you understood. So it was your journey, in a sense, as well, exploring friendship. With the benefit of hindsight, and you look back on not only those 25 books, but on your own life and the decisions that you've made, do you think that you are more Piggy or are you more Gerald? Oh, I think it's it's fairly obvious I'm, you know, I'm Gerald. I mean, to me, the, the, the cup is half full of poison. <laughs> <laughs> and Piggy is just happy that there's a cup. Right. That in and of itself <laughs> is a victory. Um, when you write characters, any any character, do they have a definite voice in your mind? Like, so if you were to read them aloud, do you give them unique voices? Yes, but I'm not dependent on that. I yeah. mean, I understand that, you know, I am, I'm not writing a movie that's going to be performed by a movie star. I'm writing a symphony that's going to be performed by all different sorts of orchestras. Mm-hmm. And those orchestras will change the pace of the piece and the... Uh, cadence of the piece and the volume of the piece so uh, I try to ensure that I don't get lost in how I read it out loud so I have voices but I may do several different voices for the character to make sure that the character can handle Mm -hmm. different representations have you ever heard your oh sorry no go ahead I was gonna, have you ever heard your characters read with a voice that when you hear it, you're just like, wow, that doesn't sound anything like what I, what I imagined it would be. Or that's what just... I hope for. Yeah. That's, yeah. The, that's when the magic happens. When they do <laughs> stuff that I totally don't expect. When they, they see things that I didn't see in there. Like, that's mm-hmm. the cool stuff. Like, give Piggy, like, a really deep baritone voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever. However, however it is. You know. <laughs> I was very conscious of making Piggy uh, a, a gendering Piggy female, but not giving her any accoutrement, not giving her any eyelashes or mm-hmm. a dress or anything like that. Um, and one of the things that gives me great joy is when they have costume days where you dress like your favorite character. There are a lot of boys who dress like Piggy. Yeah, doesn't you know? It doesn't really matter. That isn't what it's about. Um, and some kids think it's great when Piggy's in a dress, and some kids think that Piggy's in drag. Yeah. Well, I, I will be honest. When when we first discovered Elephant and Piggy many years ago, the first five or six books we picked up must not have had any gendered pronouns in them for Piggy, and I didn't know that she was a girl for until we got to, like, the seventh book or something. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, really? I thought that she was like Bugs Bunny. He just liked wearing dresses. Right. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it is... Let's see, but that, and that's what you're bringing to the table. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You didn't assume that Gerald is female. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I didn't. That's not me. No, that is me. It's totally me. Great. Thanks for that. Now I'm going to have to go, like, be a little <laughs> introspective and see what that means. <laughs> Just exposed your bias. I you. know. I'm, oh, okay, let's, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, as long as we're talking about reading books aloud and the voices that, you know, parents or teachers would give to them. Um, I, I know I, we keep referencing things you've said elsewhere, but you've said you, you, you've done a lot of really great interviews and you said that you're, like I talk all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you've said that your books are not meant to be read once. And you, you said this earlier in our interview where, you know, some are lap books, some are, are you know, like uh, books meant for the front of the classroom. 
but you write them with an understanding that they're going to be read many, many, many times. And that is absolutely true. We read the books many, many, many times. Um, but generally speaking, how many times when you're writing do you have to read your manuscript aloud to yourself before the cadence and the word choice just feels right? Be like, okay, yes, this is something that can be read aloud. Um, you know, I, again, to the, to the book is your child sort of metaphor, every single book right. is different. Yeah. And if it wasn't, it wouldn't be another book. If I had a rule for that, you know, I got to read it 20, you know, 27 times and then I've got it locked, that would be problematic for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the exciting part of this business for me is that every book comes it, it's hard. It's like starting over. Mm-hmm. The only the only difference is I can't do something I've already done, so I have even more limitations than I did 10 years ago. Right. Um, but if it wasn't that sort of numbingly terrifying, I wouldn't be doing it, you know? <laughs> so I'm getting the sense that everything is terrifying and everything you do is a failure. <laughs> no, but it's a joy. It's yeah. A joy. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I don't want to seem like I'm not extraordinarily aware of how lucky I am and how great all of this is and what I get to do. Um, but if I do really get to do exactly what I want to do, why would I be retyping the same thing? Right. Right. Fair so, enough. You know, it, it's near to a moral obligation to be challenging myself because I'm in a, in a fairly unique position, uh, which is that I, if I don't want to write about an elephant and a pig anymore, I don't have to. Mm-hmm. That's great. That doesn't happen in television. That doesn't, you know. Doesn't happen to most ins- people. Right. Doesn't happen if you're selling insurance. You can't say, you know what, today I feel like selling grapefruits. Mm-hmm. Just for a week. And then I'll go back to insurance because I'm a little bored and I kind of like grapefruits. <laughs> right? it's, it's true. Not an option. Yeah. Um. <sighs> You, going back to you know the reading aloud dynamic between parent and child though um, knowing that your books are going to be read aloud by parents or other adults and it's going to be done many many times how often do you tweak the language or the art just to make sure that those adults are going to have to be goofy you're going to have to put on a silly voice um, I think that that picture books as a general rule are um, an opportunity for a grown-up to get a shamectomy. <laughs> I love and, that. And it's one of the few chances that they take. Uh, I think of embarrassment as a learned disease. I see it as a disease. Mm-hmm. Um, most most grown-ups don't. They feel that there's a, you know, that that... The definition of being a grown-up is to be embarrassed by one's behavior if it doesn't fit in a certain shoot. Um, so one of the reasons that I keep my descriptors as little as possible is so that you, the audience, are forced to differentiate. If you've got two characters speaking on a blank page, you have to do two voices. Yeah. You don't have a choice. And so now you're going to start doing stuff a little bit crazier, it, 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 as opposed to have written, you know, writing, and then the elephant in his deep, grumbly, elephantine voice <laughs> said elephantly, 
you could just read the dialogue. And yeah. Pity replied in a snouty, porcine way, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You would just read the lines the same, right? Yeah. But the fact that there are no descriptors, there's just two sets, there's no quote smart, there's just two sets of, of dialogue there. You have to do the work. Yeah. So my job is to do as little as possible. I'm trying to put you to work. Job well done. It's, it's you know, as a parent, you read so many books and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you read, we have everything from, you know, like the classics, you know, whether that be Dr. Seuss or, or what have you into the latest picture books. And I mean, I love it. I've read to my kids every night for 10 years. Um, and I love doing it's, 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 it's a performance is what it is. That's it's right. it's a performance. You put on the voices, you act ridiculous, you get the kids involved, um, and uh, you know, this is not, I'm not just saying this because you, you happen to be sitting here and I'm talking to you, but the elephant and the piggy book, elephant and piggy books are, and there's a reason I keep harping on them so much. And it's, it's because it's because they were so formative in, in our read aloud time and that it was, it was, it was that chance um, for me as like a young father to break out of that 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 mold to be like oh it's okay for me to be ridiculous it's okay when elephant screams because something went bad you know when gerald is yelling it's okay for me to scream and yell and act ridiculous and you know when when piggy comes back in off page and she's shy and demure because she did something wrong or because she's trying to console gerald it like that's how i act and i think that it really helped me god this is gonna sound weird but it helped me learn how to be a better dad because I, 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 I figured out how to how to pull down any barriers that I thought needed to be between me and my kids. That's that's a great honor. That's really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's just and it's, no, it was, no, there's nothing wrong with being on the nose. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, something affects me and I care for something. Yeah. Uh, my uh, the book that I've got coming out next month is all that. That is the entire book is on the nose. Just saying, listen, I love you, and these are ways in which I love you, and this, these are the problems that we're going to have. Um, there's. Is that the welcome book? That's the welcome book. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with judiciously taking a pause and being on the nose. Um, that's great. I'm so glad you have that experience, and I'm glad you see it. You know, yeah. and I and hopefully that's something you can express to your kids as well. Yeah. Thank you for you know, thank you, son and daughter, for allowing me to be silly with you. Yeah. Hmm. I, I, I don't think that I quite realized it until I just put that into words. So thank you for helping me find the words. I guess. <laughs> that's great. That's wonderful. So in your own in your own reading with kids and uh, you know from your own childhood, do you have any books that you uh, went back to hundreds of times, like that are your favorites? I mean, I grew up reading uh, Peanuts, so I grew up yeah. in the '70s, and so I bought all the Fawcett books, which were Peanuts from the '60s and the '50s, mm-hmm. uh, packaged cheap. Um, so that really is my talisman. Um, I didn't have that many English language books growing up. Okay. Uh, I had a few Dutch books. My family was from Holland, so there were a few Feep Westendorp as an artist that really mattered to me. Um, and there, uh, there's one page on Sneetches and the Beaches, I probably, where they're all running and getting the stars and not getting yes. the stars. And 
money is accruing, a two-page spread that, I mean, I, I spent hours at a time just on that page yeah. um, over for, for many, many years, seeing what's going on, looking at the drawings, loving the flat color, um, things like that. So yeah, those those were I think my talisman. I didn't think I was going to write for children. I mean, I you know, no, very few people I think grow up and say I'm going to write for children. When you start mm -hmm. writing, you want to you want to be a voice of the generation, and you want that generation to be yours. Yeah. Right. There's nothing you wrong discover, with writing being the voice of a younger generation. No, it's, but you just you discover that later. Yeah, I was yeah. I was extraordinarily lucky to be hired by Sesame Street. I did not want to write for kids. I wanted to write for money. <laughs> Couldn't you do both? Well, I I was a sketch comedy writer. I was an adult sketch writer, and they hired me as an adult sketch writer and taught me how to write for kids. Um, it was only there, and only, to be honest, after many seasons, that I really understood that this was something that, that mattered to me and was going to be my future. Do you... Um... So you left um, television, you left animation early, um, when, soon after your daughter was born, is that correct? No, no, I, I, um, I kept two jobs. I stayed in TV, I probably left in, uh, after the fourth season of Codename Kids Next Door, 2006, okay. something like that. Okay. So at the point where I felt that it was worth the risk to make a living just with my books. Yeah. Was there, I mean, that, it was, must have, it was a leap of faith for you, but I'm sure it was a bigger leap for your family in a sense. So, I mean, was there a, was there a, was there, was there pushback? Was there any skepticism? Because, I mean, it, it, it's, no, it's, no, we work as a team. I mean, my, my, my wife and I, my, my three year old daughter did not have much of a vote. Uh, or stay really? in the decision at that point. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, this, the, these are these are decisions that that we made uh, as a couple. Yeah. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you no, think there was never any put? There was never any pushback in terms of in, in terms of how I was able to express myself or anything like that. I mean, I, I'm very lucky to to live in a very supportive family. Yeah. Um, and my my wife came from television production and she is the CFO of the empire here. So she runs the company. So she, she had a better sense of whether it was a reasonable decision than I did mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. she's actually running the show. I, you know, I just have to be funny once or twice a week. You, you just know? put it, you just put in the hours and that's about it. I, right? just, have to, I just have to be funny by Wednesday. <laughs> If if the right opportunity presented itself, would you think that you'd go back to animation or television in any form? Um, you know, we still make animated films based on all of my books, mm -hmm. and we have for many many years. Uh, I work with an animator I've worked with for maybe twenty years. The voice artists are usually my wife, my kid, or myself, hmm. and I love animation. I mean, one of my sort of secret prides is that I've made a film every year since nineteen eighty eight. And, have um, you really? Yeah, and you know that's not something that people necessarily associate with me, but it gives me great pleasure to be doing that. Either writing, producing, animating, voice acting. Yeah. Um, television d doesn't interest me so much 
just because of the hour, it's just very, very difficult and time consuming. Right. And the, what I would give up in terms of being with my family and being able to make books or mm-hmm. make other forms of art, you, you can't do some of that. You just can't do it unless you are fully committed. And it's, yeah, it's a great medium, but it's not, it's not where my heart is. It's a sacrifice that you're just not willing to make. Well, no, I, I think that it's just not where my heart is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if it was a medium that, that I loved beyond all other things. Then I would still be at it. But, you know, after 15 years of doing it, I, um, you know, yeah. I'm ready to do other stuff. Right. So do you do you have a dream collab? Is there another author or children in children's publishing or illustrator that you would love to work with or that you really admire? Well, there are lots of people I really admire. And what mm-hmm. I admire about most of the people that I admire, what I love about this business, unlike television or filmmaking, right. is that it, that there are so many people with unique voices and they are allowed to express themselves uniquely and fully because it is a simpler thing. One or two people, can, or maybe three people, can make a book. Um, so I am very happy to have found and made friends with these really interesting, unique people. Uh, doing the Elephant and Piggy-like reading books, which I'm sort of co-editing with people I really admire, has been a joy because I get to see other people's the way they work, which mm-hmm. is totally different than the way that I work, which is great, you know, so it's been a real education. Um, but for in terms of the books that I make, it's not for me to determine who I want to work with, it's for the story. Okay. So um, I, I don't think I could write to somebody. I don't think I could write a book for somebody to illustrate, but I have written books where in the writing, I realized that, you know, John Muth, mm-hmm. that this was mm-hmm. a John Muth story. Yeah. That that's how that story was going to work. Or uh, Tony DiTrelisi. Uh, you know, I probably will write more books like that, that I don't illustrate. But I, I, it, it's hard to, the story is more important than anything else. Right. So the story is that. the one who's going to tell us right. who, who's going to draw it. You mentioned um, the Elephant and Piggy-like reading series. I was just curious how that came about and what your role is on it. Um, it's something that I really, really wanted to do. I thought it would be interesting. I um, I wanted to finish Elephant and Piggy for a myriad of reasons, but I love drawing those guys, so I thought that the format, I get to draw four pages every six months. That's really fun. Um <laughs> I have, I have a lot of friends and a lot of people who I know and respect who make great picture books and have not made early readers. I thought, ooh, that would be fun to work with them. And it has been. So I, with my editor, we sort of very slowly approach people and talk to them and find out what some of their fundamental ideas are and, and then move forward. And it's, it's been great. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of work. It's not unlike television yeah. in that, you know, you have a certain number of stories you have to get made or you want to. Um, and every writer is different and understands the process differently. Um, but it's, it's been, it's been fascinating for me. 
Can you uh, what can you tell us about the the next one that's coming out next month? The the good for nothing button. Good for nothing button. That's uh, Sharice Harper. Um, and again, there are these sort of these sort of questions. I think ultimately, and I don't even know if Sharice would would say that she came to it this way. But the question in that book is, what do you need? Yeah. Just in general, just the big yeah, question. What do you need? Yeah. It's a big question. What you know? What is the difference between something you want and something you need? And the, what happens in this story? It's a very funny story about three birds. They find a button that does nothing. One of the birds is convinced it does nothing, but the other birds feel happy when they press it, hmm. which makes the other bird feel angry. Well, maybe this bird, this button makes people angry, and birds angry as well. It does myriad of things. Mm -hmm. um, its nothingness becomes a huge center of some really interesting questions and, and they team up in different ways and it does nothing. It's irrelevant, but it's the center of something. That's an interesting question. What do you need? Hmm. Would they have had that adventure without it? But it doesn't do anything. Yeah, but it does. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> now, I like to say I had nothing to do with this book. Yeah. Is that, is that freeing for you? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's exciting. I mean, you know, it, there's, it's a, it's a different set of muscles, Yeah. you know, and I did have a TV show and I have worked as a head writer. So I have a little bit of experience with that, but it's, it's a different set of muscles that I am enjoying figuring out. Yeah. Yeah. Aside uh, from your own, what books that are coming out in the next few months from other creators are you particularly excited about? Oh, that, I, I don't even know if I could necessarily answer that. I, a, because I don't follow it perhaps as closely as I should, mm -hmm. and B, because I, I'd just be leaving somebody out. Okay, you know? fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you yeah. off the hook. <laughs> yeah, and also, I'm not, you know, to, to the point, like, I'm not, a, I'm not a book reviewer. Yeah. You right. know what I mean? It's, I feel like, I, you know, I feel like there's this there's this desire for, you know, authors that they that they should also know everything that's going on and work as PR people and and like it's it's yeah it's hard enough. <laughs> I'm trying to get I'm trying to get 32 pages. Out. That's hard enough. It goes back to what you said before. What do you want from me? <laughs> Mo, thank you so much. This has been an, uh, just a wonderful conversation. I really, really appreciate your time. Great. Well, thank you. It was fun. Okay, so something in the interview that I, I tried, I, I was gonna, I almost laughed out loud. Like, if I was drinking water, I would have spit. When he was like, I didn't want to write books for kids. I wanted to write books for money. Or I wanted to write for money. Yes. I was like... Like, how often you hear someone be honest about that? Like, really? Like, I didn't get into this yeah. because I was like, oh, I love writing and I love the crap. I wanted money. Like, that's it. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. Well, and I think he's right. You know, it's like, I, I think what he was saying, what he meant was that like, right. <laughs> nobody starts off saying, I'm going to write for kids. You know, right. you, if you're a writer, you want to write the next great American novel. You want to write mm -hmm. the, the next Nobel Prize winning, you know, novel. And I think a lot of people think, assume that writing for children's or writing picture books is easy, you know, because no. <laughs> it's only 32 pages. It's only got like a hundred words and you just throw some pictures in there and you're done. Yeah. Um, 
And it's anything but. I think writing a picture book in many ways is so much more difficult than just writing a a novel, you know, or a young adult book or something like that, because it's, there's so much craft that goes into it. And because the word count is so small and because the page count is so low, you really, it's, it's, what is it called? The economy of, of vocabulary, like the economy of, of ideas, you know, you have to, you have to be able to fit your message and humor and, Mm -hmm. you know, emotion into those 32 pages and, you know, 100 to 200 words, whatever it is. It's, it's incredibly difficult. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know, and I know Mo comes up, uh, is, I think he's genuinely a humble person and he, and he, you know, he mentions that he thinks some of his books are failures and, but I mean, as much as he thinks that he has Caldecott awards or Caldecott honors. Three of them. (laughs) So we're going to, we're going to go in as, as humble as you, Mo, I don't know if you're listening to this, but I'm going (laughs) to, if, uh, you can be humble you don't get called a cuts by being, you know, a failure. So <laughs> I'm just going to go there. <laughs> and you certainly don't get three of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just an absolute pleasure. And like, like we said earlier, I, I feel like we just spoke to a legend. Uh, if not now, definitely in 10 years time. Absolutely. That was a great episode. So much fun. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to end that episode. Yay. Yeah, yay! That's all I have. That's 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 how good I am with words. Like no call the cots in my future. We do words good. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you so much for coming back week after week. If you want to continue the conversation, come find us on Twitter and Facebook at the GBB Podcast, or you can get in touch with us personally. Personally, like you could actually talk to me. Can you imagine? You can act. I'll respond to at one forty Justin C. And Jamie is. Oh, I'm, yeah, I guess you could talk to me too. I met the Roarbots. <laughs> I might talk back to you. He might. He's 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 getting pretty big on Twitter. Yeah, I might have please. a blue check soon. So, <laughs> right, guys, we will see you next time. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.